Heads up, this episode includes adult language, references to gun violence, and spoilers. Picture this, a typical gray morning in England, circa 1981, and a pop musician named Roland Orzabal, just on the cusp of 20 years old, is shuffling around his little apartment. I imagine him wearing a dingy bathrobe because... Roland Orzabal was kind of not working at the time. His then-girlfriend, Caroline, who subsequently became his wife, apparently she was doing three jobs. So obviously that afforded Roland the chance to sort of stay at home and hopefully, you know, write that hit. That's UK music writer Paul Clark. And from what he says, sounds like Roland needed a hit. He had grappled with depression. He'd left his first band just as they'd started getting some success. Now here he was in the upscale city of Bath, pulled up in a pretty downscale flat. Above a pizza place. So he was getting up every morning to write songs while everyone else was going about their daily business. From a window, Orzabal looked down at everybody, scurrying around, faces blank like robots. He felt so detached from them. And he was reminded of a detached kind of lyric from a tune he'd been listening to a lot. Paul Simon's still crazy after all these years. Now I sit by my window and I watch the cars. I fear I'll do some damage one fine day. Orzabal grabbed an acoustic guitar and wrote a song about what he saw and felt looking out his own window. called Mad World, but it, he said it could have been called Bourgeois World because that's what he was looking at. He was looking at people in a well-to-do area of England going about their sort of business while he was upstairs. Halfway through, the lyrics pivot to one of Orzabal's obsessions, the damage this Mad World does to kids. There are lines about childhood trauma and nightmares. It seemed pretty dark for radio play, but Orzabal demoed Mad World with his bandmate, Kurt Smith, who sang it, and... Initially, they offered it to the band's A&R man, David Bates, and they said, oh, this is probably gonna be a B-side, and he turned around and said, no, that's gonna be a single. He was right. In 1982, Mad World became the first top 10 UK hit for a band called Tears for Fears. But it was 20 years before the song reached number one, thanks to an indie film about another alienated kid that gave the music industry a whole new verb to Mad World. I'm Rico Galliano, and welcome back to the Mubi Podcast. Mubi's the curated streaming service that champions great cinema. On this show, we tell you the stories behind great cinema. This is season three. We're calling it Needle on the Record because we're diving into a few of movie history's most iconic needle drops, the moments when filmmakers take pre-existing tunes, drop them in their films, and end up with something legendary. And Richard Kelly's 2001 movie Donnie Darko has to be one of the unlikeliest legends ever, a genre-defying box office flop that left its first audiences totally confused, then somehow rose from the ashes and brought the music of Smith and Orzabal's band along for the ride. Yeah, I was 16 and I was not familiar with Tears for Fears. 
at all. I wasn't cool enough, I guess. That is one of the film's stars, Jenna Malone. And I talked to her and many others about the making of this movie and how it helped make Tears for Fears required listening for 21st century kids on both sides of the Atlantic. It was so big. I mean, it's hard to fathom how big, I mean, people were calling in the radio saying like, I heard it and I pulled over on the highway because I couldn't drive and listen to it at the same time. It's a movie and a soundtrack that unites Gen Xers and millennials alike. So turn up the volume as we drop the needle on Donnie Darko. Uh, my name is Richard Kelly, and I am a writer, director of motion pictures. Um, not as many as I would have liked, <laughs> but there's there's a lot more coming, I promise. Yeah, Richard Kelly has plenty of time to make more movies because he made his first one so young, right out of film school. The idea for it almost literally dropped out of the sky. There was a story I read about a piece of ice that fell from the wing of a jet plane and crushed the bedroom of a, I think a 15, 16 year old kid's home. He wasn't there. He was like at baseball practice or something when it happened. But I thought that's gotta be disturbing for something to fall from the sky and crush your bedroom. That feels like a some kind of message, you know? Richard was just 23, but when he read this story, he took it as kind of a message himself that he better hurry up and start writing. This is at the very tail end of the 90s, and I was just in a panic thinking, if I'm going to be a filmmaker, I have to write a feature-length script. And that was the idea that I latched onto. And then I think the piece of ice became a jet engine, and then it became a mystery of, like, where did the engine come from? And let's build a mystery around that. And it just came pouring out from there. How long did it take you to write it? Uh, 28 days, probably right around the same time frame of the film. 28 days, six hours, 42 minutes, 12 seconds. That is when the world will end. Why? Donnie Darko is the story of the title character played by Jake Gyllenhaal sweet but rebellious suburban teen struggling with schizophrenia. He's out sleepwalking one night when he sees a vision of Frank, a guy dressed in a ghoulish bunny rabbit costume, who tells him, yeah, the apocalypse is just under a month away. And moments later, that jet engine comes crashing through Donnie's empty bedroom. Everyone says it's a freak accident, but it seems to put Donnie's visions into overdrive. Soon Frank's showing up in his home, sending Donnie out on strange missions at night. Wake up, Donnie. Sometimes Donnie takes along an ax. Then he learns about a book that seems to prove the existence of time travel and of a tangent world parallel to ours and wormholes in space between them. Is that where the engine came from? Is there some kind of rift in space and time? Or is this poor kid just losing his mind. Even today, Kelly does not have an easy time pitching this story. It's kind of impossible to describe. It's, um, I don't know, it's a coming of age film, but it's also a science fiction uh, journey. Um, It's a story of a community uh, in crisis, I guess. Uh, (laughs) uh, 
God. But it's a tribute to his writing that the script actually generated a ton of buzz in Hollywood anyway. Actually, it sounds like the thing producers found weirdest about it was that it's set in 1988. School's canceled. Do you want to walk me home? In fact, between all the sci-fi thriller stuff, the script read like a bittersweet homage to 80s John Hughes teen flicks. There's a romance between high school misfits. My parents got a divorce. My mom had to get a restraining order against my stepdad. He has emotional problems. Oh, I have those too. What kind of emotional problems does your dad have? There's a climactic teenage house party. And right from the opening scene, a bike ride through suburbia set to echo in the Bunnymen's The Killing Moon. There's wall-to-wall 80s new wave. But getting those music rights and actually recreating an 80s world wasn't going to make the movie easier or cheaper to shoot. And I got a lot of pushback. Everyone was like, why is this necessary? Just make it present day. Come on, Richard. You know, I'm like, no. (laughs) I want to do the 80s music. I want to do all the incredible British post-punk new wave music and all that 1988 had to offer. And you got to pick your battles. One of the battles of Donnie Darko, one of the many, uh, was holding on to 1988 as a time frame. Kelly had reasons to stand his ground. For one thing, in the year 2000, filmmakers just weren't mining 80s pop culture like they do today. Definitely not in dramas. He knew it would set his movie apart. But more importantly, the America of 1988 already felt like a way gentler place compared to the America of the brand new 21st century. The investigation into the high school massacre is slow moving and dangerous. The two gunmen who went on the rampage booby-trapped the building and even themselves. I didn't want Donnie to be like a year 2000 teenager and all of the accompaniment to that. You gotta remember when we made this film, it was just like a year out from the Columbine massacre and the discourse around troubled teenagers had become much darker and much more severe and troubling. And I kind of wanted it to be innocent. I, I didn't want, if I had set the movie in 2000, you know, with Donnie, he would be online all the time. He'd be sitting in front of his computer and like, God, it was like, I w- would hate to think of Donnie being like the first incel, you know? <laughs> In fact, in a year 2000 world that had just gone through Bill Clinton's impeachment, even the movie's politics were a throwback to a, let's say, more civil time. I'm voting for Dukakis. I liked the idea of it happening in an election year. The first line of dialogue in the whole movie is, I'm voting for Dukakis, and then a family discussion about uh, the election. Maybe when you have children of your own who need braces, you can't afford them because half of your husband's paycheck goes to the federal government, you'll uh, regret that. My husband's paycheck? (laughs) When we shot the movie in late summer of 2000, we were facing an election between George Bush and Al Gore. Yet we were making a film about the election of Bush's father. You know, we were in the middle of of this sea change and we were kind of making a film about a, a much, much more innocent changing of the guard, I guess. Yeah, a time when you could have a conversation like that at the dinner table and it wouldn't be a duel to the death. Yeah, it would be playful. Do you honestly think Michael Dukakis will provide for this country till you're ready to squeeze one out? Yeah, I do. Hmm. When can I squeeze one out? Not until eighth grade. But as the guy in the bunny suit might say, this world is about to end. You could argue the whole movie is about the moment innocence is lost. So it makes sense Kelly's soundtrack, consciously or not, 
wound up spotlighting a band whose music hit that theme hard. This is not that band. This is an act called Graduate, formed in 1980 and fronted by two guys who would go on to bigger things, Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith. Yeah, they, they were quite young when they started off. I think Roland was too young to sign a contract, so they had to wait for his 18th birthday, so that shows how young they were. You remember Paul Clark from the top of this episode. He wrote the book Tears for Fears on Track, a song-by-song dive into the history of Tears for Fears, starting with their genesis as, yes, these guys. Catch me if you can. Uh, the Graduate is very kind of throwaway, very poppy. The lyrical depth wasn't there. Uh, one of their songs was Elvis Must Play Scar. I think he, Elvis Costello had said something derogative about Scar music, so they kind of wrote a reply to him and said, you should play Scar. Uh, but Roland and Kurt didn't really enjoy being in that band. I think they weren't too happy with the poppy elements. So the pair of them left with the intention of setting up a studio-based band, which was Tears for Fears. And the new duo's main influence definitely wasn't upbeat pop. In fact, it wasn't music at all. This is a group session in primal therapy. The idea is to go back. Uncover the hurts of childhood, relive them, and free the real you. <laughs> the name Tears for Fears stems from the works of uh, psychologist Arthur Janoff, who wrote Prisoners of Pain, Primal Scream Theory. So Tears for Fears means using tears to kind of release childhood fears. Yeah, Janoff's Primal Scream Therapy partly involved patients casting their minds back to their innocent youth and literally screaming their rage at the grown-ups who'd corrupted it. What did you want, Mama? What did you want? What did you want? Folks like John Lennon were patients of Janoff, and when Smith and Orzabal got turned on to his work, they felt well-seen. Kurt was a, a, a rebel at school. You know, he was always in trouble with school. Uh, Roland had a difficult sort of childhood. His mum was kind of mistreated by his father, so that came through in kind of later songs like Woman in Chains. So they both have difficult childhoods and they latched onto sort of Janoff's work as inspiration for songs for Tears for Fears. So as a, a shout is kind of talking about Primal Scream without actually saying it's about Primal Scream. Shout, shout. Then there's Mad World, with that Janoff-inspired line about nightmares as a form of healing relief. Mad World references the dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. An expression related to, you know, the intense nature of a dream about death can release kind of tensions and pressures and, and what have you, really. So, a band shouting about lost innocence and about confronting fears. They were the perfect match for Richard Kelly's coming-of-age psychodrama. So to me, it seems fitting they're the only band whose songs appear on the soundtrack twice, and that both tracks kinda helped save the production. I'm gonna tell you about the first time that happened in a minute, but to understand it, right now I want you to hear a story from someone. My name's Jenna Malone, and I played play I have, yeah, played um, Gretchen Ross in the film. Back in 2000, Jenna Malone had already appeared in blockbusters like Contact and Stepmom, 
Still, she probably wasn't sure Richard Kelly would cast her as Donnie Darko's cool but wounded girlfriend after what happened at her audition. Well, I remember being kind of a, I mean, am I allowed to cuss on this? Sure. (laughs) I mean, I just remember kind of being an asshole because it was Rich and it was Sean, his producing partner, and it was an assistant. And the assistant was older. And so... Instantly in my wildly, you know, indoctrinated ageism, I went to the assistant, the the casting assistant and was like, hi, nice to meet you. I love the script. And I thought that these two other, you know, young kids were just like, I don't know, assistants are hanging out. I don't know. They're pages. Yeah. And then Rich was like, oh, no, I I wrote it. And I was like, oh. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like this was par for the course. Like I say, Kelly was super young, making his rookie feature. Even some of the crew didn't quite take him seriously. Yeah, you know, and you have to, and I was 25, you know, who the fuck wants to trust a 25-year-old with anything, you know? Uh, and I was, I was stubborn, you know, and I had to earn everyone's trust. Which he finally did when he shot one of the movie's signature sequences. A dreamy montage as the camera glides through Donnie's high school, set to a great song by a certain band. Head Over Heels, which is a, a, just a beautiful song. I always loved Tears for Fears growing up. And the emotion of the song, the sort of lyricism of it, just the teenage yearning sensibility that I associated with that song, it just felt right. It does. On one hand, Head Over Heels feels like a grand love song with big chiming riffs that might've been inspired by a guy the band was listening to when they recorded it, Bruce Springsteen. Lyrically, it hits on the band's familiar theme. Yeah, it's about falling in love, but also about how scars from childhood make love hard and the hope things will work out anyway. All that over images of kids and teachers drifting in slow-mo. It feels aching. And I had that montage in my head and I wrote it into the script. It was literally choreographed and written into the script that Head Over Heels plays. And then we follow Donnie throughout the the hallway of the school and we reveal all the major characters in this musical montage. It's like a music video. We float through the window of the classroom as the lyric time flies, plays, and we fade out of the song. check that clip on YouTube. It has millions of views. Typical comment, quote, I can't explain why I fucking love this scene. But that's more or less what Kelly had to keep telling his own line producers, almost up to the day it was shot. There was a lot of pushback that like, Richard, why are you making us spend half a day shooting a music video in the middle of your movie where no one is talking? There's no dialogue. You're going to cut this out. The song is expensive. You don't even know if Tears for Fears will give you the song. There was all this just like pushback, pushback, pushback. And I was like, trust me, it's going to work. And (laughs) by the way, you shot that without having the rights to the song. Of course we didn't have the rights. (laughs) No, but I've found that sometimes you take that swing, and we did. I think it was when I realized we were doing something technically 
amazing. Um, on the page, it was a pretty straightforward shot. You know, it's like two thirds of a page. And when I got there, this camera was like rigged up on this crazy thing so that it could basically go 360 and it had this like horizontal frame on it. And I remember talking to the DP and being like, what, what, are, you, what are you guys doing? And people were sweating bullets. It was the second day of photography, you know. It was day two and here I was devoting the entire first half of the day to this music video with Tears for Fears. Got it. But we shot it. And I told the editors to just cut it together with the Tears for Fears, get me a tape of it and rush it to set, please. So I can just show it to everyone and prove to everyone that this is gonna work. And I brought everyone into my trailer, this little tiny trailer where I never even spent more than like five minutes <laughs> shooting the movie. And we put the VHS into the player and I'd already seen it. So I just looked at their faces reacting to it. And you could just see one by one, everyone was won over. They were all like, oh. Oh, okay. Okay, Richard, okay, Richard. Let's, let's get, okay, we're back, let's go. You could just see this like galvanizing, like even my first AD who was just like a nervous wreck <laughs> for the first week. He, I thought he was gonna like blow his brains out, you know? You could see him just exhale and off to the races we went. So that was the first one. The second Tears for Fears miracle was yet to come. Richard Kelly and company learned just what a mad world this is. Coming up in just a minute, stay with us. So listen, everyone, Mubi is a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe, all of them handpicked by real people who really know movies. It's the best of cinema streaming anytime, anywhere. And we love going out to theaters, too. In fact, check this out. The theater where Donnie Darko goes on a date to see the movie The Evil Dead is actually my local theater, The Arrow in Santa Monica. That is where they shot that scene. I go there all the time. And we want you to do the same at your local cinema, which is why we came up with Movie Go. When you sign up, you get a free movie ticket every week to see a hand-selected film in theaters. Previous picks include award-winning films like Decision to Leave, All Quiet on the Western Front, EO, Holy Spider, and Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Movie Go is now available in the UK, Ireland, Germany, India, and select cities in the US. To learn more, check out movie.com go. Also, speaking of the arrow, if you're in the L.A. area on Easter Sunday, come see Donnie Darko there with me and Richard Kelly. I will be interviewing him live before your very eyes after the film. And then we are going to show The Evil Dead as well. Yes, it is a double feature. That is April 9th, 2023. Get tickets at AmericanCinemaTech.com. Finally... After you finish listening today, you can stream some of the films we have featured on this podcast. All you got to do is head to movie.com and look for the collection called Featured on the Movie Podcast. Go figure. That's on the Now Showing page. And I know I just threw a ton of information and websites at you. As always, you will find all the links you need in the show notes of this episode. Speaking of which, let's get back to it. <laughs> So it's December of 2000, shooting on Donnie Darko is wrapped, and for Richard Kelly, 
life still hasn't got any easier. We were rushing to get the movie mixed and finished for Sundance, the way that all filmmakers spend their Christmas holiday. If they get into Sundance, they don't go home for Christmas. They are in a sound studio, like sweating out like late night hours, getting their mix finished. A major source of sweat, two moments that needed music bad. First, a montage scene Kelly hoped to cover with a very expensive U2 song. And second, something for the end credits. So for that, enter his in-house music genius. Uh, well, I'm Michael Andrews or Mike Andrews or Elgin Park, depending on who is uh, talking to me. But um, I am a musician. In 2000, Michael Andrews was a rising film and TV composer. He just wrapped work on Freaks and Geeks. And under the nom de plume Elgin Park, he'd been playing and producing music down in San Diego for years. But when he took the Donnie Darko gig, Richard Kelly still managed to knock him for a musical loop. You know, well, one of the things that was interesting is that I had been a guitar player at that point for about 20 plus years. And he was like, okay, cool. So we don't want any guitar on this score. And I was like, okay, well, I'm a guitar player. So <laughs> um, I guess I'm gonna just like play a different instrument. He chose the piano, an instrument he'd never studied. But he says he just put on a VHS tape of edited Darko scenes. Press play, and I started playing the piano and started writing themes. I still have the tape. Wow, really? Yeah, I was thinking of actually releasing it because there's so many mistakes on it because I could barely play. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it's really funny. Apparently, he was a quick learner. This is called The Artifact and Living one of 16 Andrews instrumentals laced through Donnie Darko, simple and heartbreaking. And to fill the end credits, he imagined a full song, lyrics and all, in the same vein. So one night, he sat down at the piano and just to get the vibe, started replaying this piece. Boom, 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 right? I start playing that. I'm thinking, oh, cool. I'm like, huh, let me think. And then I thought, whoa, Mad World. Mad World. Michael had been producing a record for his childhood friend Gary Jules, and they'd been playing covers of 80s tunes. Also, he grew up loving Tears for Fears, and I get the feeling he never really didn't have their music on his mind. And so I went to the fucking Tears for Fears <laughs> record, and I listened to the thing, and I thought, can I superimpose that song on this score. Can I make that feel the same as my score? He riffed a little on Mad World, using the same tempo and style as the artifact. And so I figured out how to do it. And I called Nancy Javone and she was a producer on the movie. I said, can we license this song? I'm gonna make a cover of Mad World. I sang it to her. She's like, that sounds awesome. I said, I'm not gonna sing it. My friend Gary's gonna sing it. He lives down the street. We'll do it tomorrow. Gary Jules did come over the next day. The song was done in an hour. It was gonna change their lives. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces. But first, it was gonna change the movie. When U2 fell through, Richard Kelly tried moving Andrew's mad world from the credits to that montage. A series of shots tracking across the familiar faces of every character waking up from a dream in which someone is dying. The dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. 
Richard called me. He's like, you're not going to believe this. We're going to send you something. And I said, okay. He's like, what is it? He's like, it's Mad World. And I was like, what? He's like, we put Mad World over the montage and it's absolutely incredible. So he sent it and I was like, whoa, it's insane. It's amazing. And then that was it. And it lived there. It just kind of vibed with what was there already. They didn't, did they even have to edit it that much too? They did. I don't think they edited it at all. They didn't edit the song and they didn't edit the movie. It was just like this weird thing that happened. It's very sort of symbolic of, of how a lot of the great things in this movie happened, which is just like, they just strangely happened. And strange is definitely the word for the next stuff that happened, though it took a while for it to get great. Donnie Darko premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, January 2001. I don't think we did a screening before Sundance. Sundance was the first time. Jenna Malone was there. Yeah, it was wild. I mean, I think we were at the big theater, too. And what's cool about Rich is that he had shown bits and pieces as we were working. So I felt like I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, that's going to be that, and that's going to be that. And so I kind of had an awareness, but... I felt like I was just like glued to my seat. Like I couldn't even stand up after. I mean, you want to make films. I mean, you believe in them. You do them because you love them. And 90% of the time, they don't really ever reach what you thought you were making. But this was even better than I thought I was making. Also there that night was an indie film mogul who's hated now, but who Michael Andrews remembers was everything then. There was this moment, it was sort of like waiting for Guffman. We're waiting for Harvey Weinstein, right? Harvey Weinstein wants to buy the movie, blah, blah, blah. Waiting for Harvey, he's gonna see the movie. And at this point, he was such a superstar. If he showed up to your movie at Sundance, it was like, oh shit, bidding war, you know? And he showed up, got out of his limo. I remember seeing him get out of his limo and I thought, oh shit, he's gonna buy the movie, whatever. And everybody was really excited. And then it turned out nobody wanted to buy the movie at Sundance. It was like, it went from like, this is going to be the biggest thing ever to like, nobody wants this thing. I think most people, they tend to focus on the sort of sci-fi element and they can't figure out the ending and, you know, the bunny. And really, it's so deeply full of longing and sadness, you know, and talking about a young boy's mental health and... I think people were still a little reticent of like, do I like this? Are people going to get this? Like, do I even get this? I think there was a lot of that. Like, people didn't know whether to really fully love it or not. And it put everything in jeopardy, starting with the soundtrack. We didn't even have any of the music paid for until well after our very, very disappointing Sundance debut. So the music was always in a precarious place of being just completely dropped. There was a, a version of events that could have happened to Donnie Darko where literally all of these songs would have either been just completely removed, cut way down, and you would hear some really crappy sound-alike 80s music. Even when a company called New Market stepped in to buy the film and pay for the music, it took a rising filmmaker and Donnie Darko fan named Christopher Nolan to convince them not to dump it straight to video. And they gave us a brief theatrical release. They were like, okay, we'll give you a tiny little theatrical release with very little marketing, but we got the movie finished. We got it. We clung to the five or six pop songs and we had it all ready for our October 26th release. But just before that could happen, something else did. 9-11. 
After which, for a long time, a lot of people just huddled at home, not going to movies, and especially not to this one. They didn't want to go see a movie that where there was a plane that like lands in people's houses. You know, it wasn't where where America was at at that moment. No, I remember getting a really really um, solemn voicemail from my my agent at the time, like. So Richard, um, happy Saturday. Uh, we got the the numbers on Donnie Darko, uh, 58 screens and a per screen average of about $1,100. Hope you're having a good Saturday, man. Check in and we'll talk soon. It was, it was something like that. You know, it was like, wow, that's really not good. The reviews didn't help. Some critics raved. Many of the biggest guns didn't. The New York Times called it, quote, lumpy and dolorous. I think it was the first film I was a part of that was considered kind of a failure, you know? But I mean, I was also a teenager, so it was definitely like a fuck the world, like they don't get it, I don't care, like I love it. And actually a few months after the film left theaters, Jenna got an inkling she wasn't alone. You know, for me, it's always the barometer like of what people recognize you from. I feel like previously it was a lot of like stepmom, stepmom, stepmom. And then all of a sudden it was sort of like Donnie Darko and then more Donnie Darko. And I was like, how did you see it? People were starting to play it as a midnight movie in Manhattan. And then when it came out on DVD in like March of 2002, that's when it really took off. Enough so that by October, the film got another theatrical release in the UK. And people went nuts for it. I just remember it being one of those underground things that people are like, you need to see this, you need to hear this kind of thing. That's Edith Bowman. She hosts the movie music podcast Soundtracking. And in 2002, she was a DJ on the BBC's Radio One, living in London, where she remembers a full-on Darko phenomenon. Well, is it a word for something that's cult, but it's commercial? <laughs> I don't know. Because that's what this is. It's commercial. It's kind of commercial or commult. I don't know. Yeah, but it was that. Donnie Darko is huge here still. You know, I remember doing a London Film Festival kind of conversation with Jake maybe four or five years ago. Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, and we did a kind of survey of attendees and going, what's the film you know you want to hear them talk about? And... About 80% of that was like, Donnie Darko, Donnie Darko. The movie showed on fewer screens in this way smaller country and grossed nearly four times what it did in the U.S. It was a hit. All, all of a sudden I had a hit movie and it was like, okay, maybe my career is, isn't over. Maybe uh, I'm going to have a chance to keep doing this. So God bless the U.K. But why the U.K.? What made it such a hit there? Edith Bowman thinks it's not just that Brits were a year and an ocean away from 9-11. We like to keep things to ourselves as well. And that for me is a lot of what's at the core of films like Donnie Darko, where you kind of internalize things. You feel slightly a bit like an outsider. You're the only person going through stuff. That it's, it's a version of that stiff upper lip. You know, we bury stuff. Yeah, and this is a movie about a kid who's uh, grappling with a lot of internal demons, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. He was kind of like, he's one of us. A country full of Donnie Darkos, bottled up, yearning for a primal scream. It's a theory, and maybe an overly convenient way for me to partly explain the totally crazy thing that happened next. In fall 2003, Mad World, as covered by Michael Andrews and Gary Jules for Donnie Darko, started getting radio play in the UK. That's not the crazy part. It had already been getting airtime on the taste-making LA radio station KCRW, 
And apparently a BBC DJ, who was a fan of the film, just followed suit. Gary Jewell's manager went to Britain to fan the flames. And then Gary called me. He's like, dude, this song, they're say, they, they think this song can go all the way up the chart. I was like, yeah, right. Call me when it's number 10 or whatever, you know. It did get to number 10 and climbed higher. Suddenly. It was everywhere. You you turn on the radio, any radio station in the UK, and it would be on incredibly heavy rotation. Literally, you'd flick through every station and you'd probably hear it like within half an hour on every station. It was so big. I mean, it's hard to fathom how big. It, it was as big as like Adele. I mean, people were calling in the radio saying like, I heard it and I pulled over on the highway because I couldn't drive and listen to it at the same time. <laughs> it was ridiculous. You know, and as it climbed up the charts, I cruised over there. It was like number three or four at the time that I went over there and we played on top of the pops. Oh yeah, I should mention, all this was happening in the run-up to Christmas, which every year for decades has been the most hyped few weeks in the UK pop music calendar. So the, I don't know if it's a thing in the States, but in the UK, it's like a kind of gladiator battleground of who's gonna be Christmas number one in the charts, in the pop charts. It's, it's such a big thing that Christmas number one in, in the UK you can go to a betting office and bet on who's going to be Christmas number one. And Mad World wasn't the favourite to be the Christmas number one. It was a band called The Darkness, and they had a kind of a euphemistic double entendre laden single called Christmas, Don't Let the Bells End. That was the song that everyone reckoned was going to be number one, and then all of a sudden... Mad World becomes number one. Second time in the history of Christmas number ones that it's an American group. And I can't believe it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I thought it was absolutely insane, but it happened. Years later, at a live performance for the Spotify Landmark series, Tears for Fear's own Kurt Smith sounded just as dumbfounded. Obviously, living in LA, the Gary Jules version I'd heard what, a year and a half before, I guess, on KCRW. The fact it became a number one in, like a year and a half later in England at Christmas time shows you a little bit about the English mentality. <laughs> you can chalk it up to the English mentality or to geopolitics. The Iraq war began in 2003 and the world did seem pretty mad. But the song captured some kind of zeitgeist, fired up Andrews and Jules careers and put Tears for Fears back on the radar. They weren't a band who were being played a lot on radio. They weren't very visible. They were maybe at a bit of a fallout. There was kind of a bit of animosity or they'd gone off to do their separate thing. They weren't touring and it kind of did two things. It kind of propelled this new version, but it also propelled people's minds back to this great band. Smith and Orzabal actually reunited the following year, something they'd apparently been planning, but which sure wasn't hurt by their old song's new fame or probably by the cash it brought in. I mean, if you think about it, just go on Spotify and type up Mad World and listen to all the covers of it and just know that like every time that that song plays, they get paid because they wrote it. And just look at how many of them are exactly like the arrangement that's on Donnie Darko. There are a lot. All around me are familiar faces. Worn out Demi Lovato's. Worn out Lily Allen's Adam Lambert's and Jenna Malone's I did a cover of Mad World I have a band 
we, we just did it live. But I think there's a video somewhere. And it's actually kind of hard to sing. I remember being like, oh, I should practice this more. You kind of kicked off a cottage industry of Mad World covers. I, well, I mean, I think Mad World became like a verb, you know, where people are like, oh, yeah, let's Mad World that. <laughs> Which means? Which means take a song and put it on a dark piano and sing it slowly. That's what it means. <laughs> Next time you hear someone doing that, you can say that they mad-worlded it. Yeah, there's been lots written about the wave of movie trailers featuring sad, stripped-down covers of pop tunes. It's usually traced back to the Kalakni Brothers choral version of Radiohead's Creep. But I don't know. The Donnie Darko soundtrack came out first. As for Richard Kelly... When we talked, I noticed the word battle came up a lot. The battle to keep Donnie Darko in 1988, to keep the high school montage, to keep the music, to get it in theaters. But as we were signing off, he used a different word. I'm grateful that I, so grateful that the, the people, the gatekeepers let me make this movie, even with all the, the, the obstacles and all the hurdles we had to, to get past, you know, they, they let me make this damn thing. And, you know, it changed my life, and taking the the difficult path sometimes can be much more gratifying if you find if you can make it to the finish line. For Richard Kelly, maybe for anyone, making art is a bad dream. The best you'll ever have. That's the movie podcast for this week. Follow us to make sure you get a front row seat for more deep dives into movies and music. Next week, the movie that showed the world there was more to Jamaica than chill island vibes. Suddenly, everybody could understand reggae. You could say, right, this is what it's about. And it means something. It's not just there to make white people dance. The Harder They Come helps reggae catch fire around the world. Follow us so you don't miss it. Meanwhile, this episode was hosted, written, and edited by me, Rico Galliano. Jackson Musker is our booking producer. Kira McKenniff is our producer. Stephen Colon mastered and engineered. Martin Ostwick composed our original music. Additional music by the band People With Bodies. Thanks this week to Selena C.A. Reynolds and everyone at the American Cinematheque. Jenna Malone's latest is the horror film Consecration that's streaming now on Shudder. This series is executive produced by me along with John Baranachea, F.A. Checkerell, Daniel Kasman, and Michael Taka. If you love the show, tell the world by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen, won't you? Let them know we are not your standard movie chat show. Also, if you've got questions, comments, or your own cover of Mad World you want to alert us to, chances are you have one, fire off an email to podcast at movie.com. And of course, to stream the best in cinema, including some of the films we talk about on this very podcast, just head over to movie.com to start watching. Thanks for listening. Be safe. Now go watch some movies. Movie.